Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth, the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continuously and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And here's our verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Yeah, you may be seated. <laughs> I'm going to explain to you that that fidget spinner, all it does is goes in circles. And I'm about to make about a four-foot journey down to the pole, uh, pew to get my nose. I need these. <laughs> I have to tell you that these things sold really popularly until finally the market was saturated and now it's overly saturated with them. You're going to see a lot of folks going, I'm tired of these things. Um, but the reason it's saturated is because people had it as the latest trend and uh, unfortunately or fortunately as the cons uh, producers might say, we are a consumer driven society. Yesterday I saw them putting Christmas stuff out at Walmart. Mm -hmm. Christmas. Mm -hmm. Only 94 shopping days, or whatever it is. It matters, or so it seems to us, if something is new and improved. Or if you see a new flavor, they say, try it. Just try it. More and more producers are trying to find ways to make us increasingly consume more. They promote things bigger, faster, more convenient, more features, easier to use, softer, stronger, cleaner, more effective, more tasty, more this and more that, and less this and less that. Do I sound like a commercial? Mm -hmm. I tried. In houses of the 1800s and early 1900s, get this, there were no closets. That was a new thing in the 20th century. People had a dresser or an armoire or a wardrobe and they weren't full of all their stuff. There was no need for them for storage space for stuff because people just didn't simply have any. Now we're convinced that stuff is a necessity. We need, we tell ourselves, Storage buildings because our garages are full <laughs> of stuff. But I ask a question. Why is it only a necessity in the United States and other prosperous countries to have more storage space? Because now we make more money than ever to buy the stuff 
and had to spend more to buy ways to store the stuff. One of the biggest selling items at convenience stores is storage bins. Oh, I don't have one in that color. And that's kind of what they do. Come up with new colors for new ways to store stuff. And I don't know about you, but I look for more and new and increasingly convincing reasons to spin my purchases into good ideas. My wife would agree with that, but uh, she would not agree that they're good ideas. <laughs> now, when I was in seminary, I believed I had it all figured out. I, I think I knew back then what started consumer insanity of faster, quicker, bigger, and louder. And here's what I thought. I thought it had to do with the microwave oven. Now you might say, microwave oven? Everybody's got one of those. Pretty much everybody does. But why were they created? To cook things quicker. That way, we save time from all that cooking and preparation with microwave meals Two and a half minutes in a, in a bag of popcorn is yours in your hand. Single serve sizes became increasingly popular. Microwave meals became individualized servings and it divided the family to different meals in the microwave and it made it so it was quicker and we thought this is a good idea and we bought them in droves. The radar range, if you will, by Amana. And not that I'm selling their stuff, but that was one of the earliest ones I remember. <coughs> And I remember my first purchase on my first credit card was approved because I bought a microwave oven at JCPenney pending approval of a credit card from them. And my new phrase was, I'm going to nuke it. <laughs> and that's probably what we still say, but that was in the 80s when I started saying, I'm going to nuke it. And it only took two minutes to heat up a sandwich. Pretty cool. But all of a sudden, the mindset was there that if I could get it done quicker, I'll have more time later for other things that I used to do, preparing meals and things like that, that that little convenient utensil or utility, uh, shall we say, appliance, took the place of. Um, problem was, is it didn't give me more time. It made me feel more rushed when I only had two minutes to cook the meal and I had to wait for that thing to finish to two minutes. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? Is it sets a mindset that we deserve it quicker and when we want it and what we want and therefore a whole new need in our minds was created. And I think that's true. I think that's what happened. And if you look at um, this first chapter in Ecclesiastes that I just read for you, it almost sounds like we are in this cycle that Solomon is talking about. It's like the fidget spinner. Well, I've got to get this so I can get that so I can get that. And all it is is it just keeps going around in a big circle. Nothing changes in that circle except for the fact that I've got to do it quicker so I can have more time later. And later I've got something else to help me do something quicker to have more time later. So I have all these time-saving devices and no time. What is the most common problem in our society when you ask someone if they want to do something? They're busy. What were they busy doing? Saving the time? Were they busy doing other things so they could do the things that don't take as long so those other things they could do longer that make them busy? I don't know how this works, but it happened. 
Our society became, let's make ourselves productive, and we, in the process, isolated ourselves further and further from one another and further and further from God. And here's what Solomon says. He said, What profit do you have from your labor in which you toil under the sun? And I began to think about this, and maybe you've heard the story of uh, Paul Bunyan and going up against this great modern level thing called a, uh, a saw, a steam saw or a power saw. And they were going to see whether Paul Bunyan or the saw was more effective. And at the end of it, it was one quarter inch difference and the, and the power tool won the day. And the whole effective thing was saying, you can get more done with a power tool than you could have by just yourself. And Paul Bunyan was a stately tall giant of a man, so a single person could do more than a giant of a man with this. And that was the message I got out of that. But here's what I, why I bring that up. I was thinking about, wouldn't it have been awesome if we could take our technology that we have today back to the times of when they're building the, the temple or the ships that Jesus sailed in or the pyramids. We took all our technology back there. It could have helped them get it done quicker. Then the Israelites wouldn't have had to been slaves so long. And uh, they could have been freed by the Egyptians earlier. And all these things that could have happened. But let me tell you the error in that kind of thinking. Because once they realize they can build it quicker, they want to build more. Not the same amount. So if it took 40 years to construct the Herod's temple or so, and you could do it in 20, Herod would build a second one somewhere else probably. Well, I saved all that time and labor here. Let's take it and put it over here. There was no way that time-saving devices saved time and gave us the idea that we could get more done. In this process, what happens is our minds start looking for things to fill up the time. And we start getting anxious about what's next and what can I do. And, and a new word, actually an old word, but with a new spin on it, came into being. And the word was boredom. I hear four-year-olds use the word bored. I'm bored. You ever heard that from a four-year-old? I hear it from all ages now. I'm bored. But let me tell you something. When I was four, I was never bored. I always had something I could think of to do that was fun or creative or someone I could play with. Always. There was never a time I sat there and go, geez, I'm bored. Unless I was in time out. <laughs> but I still found things to think about. Y'all probably never got in trouble like that, but I, I, I seem to gravitate toward the time out chair. So this word bored doesn't mean what they think it means. Bored to them says, I have nothing to do. Go in a garage in a storage building or in your toy chest. You have plenty to do. <laughs> we all have plenty to do. But it's so overwhelming, we don't know what to pick. So we think well, I have nothing to do. But the word bored really means I find no purpose in what I'm doing. That's what it means. I find no purpose in doing this. Someone working on a... On, if you don't like math, you'd be like, this math is so boring, it means I have no purpose in this. It doesn't make sense that I should do this. So they think, well, I'd rather be outside playing ball or, or you know, in the garden or anything, pulling teeth in this. 
I'm so bored with this. And it's not bored. It's they've lost purpose for life. And so they get anxious because they don't have anything to do and they're bored and no one to talk to or if you will, all those different things. And yet, what it says in, in Solomon is what profit is there in which you toil under the sun? Because if you get more done, there's more to do. There's always something new to do. The jobs for folks who are in social service or uh, people serving work, there's always something else to do, to get done. You never finish a job. Pastor's job is never done. A guy who works in a factory at, at the time the whistle blows, it's time to go home, but someone else comes and does the job, but for him, he doesn't have more to do there. Now he goes home and creates it. It's always like that. And in our society, what that's created for us is a bunch of people who are emotionally falling apart. Our world has become, in our country, a state of mental illness. And it's become worse and worse and worse. And it's not getting better with the fear and anxiety over uh, world tension, um, the race riots, and all this other stuff. And yet all that stuff is a cry out to say, do I matter? Can I connect with people? And Solomon keeps saying, you work and you work and you work. At the end of the day, what does it matter if all you have is more work to do? It's a good question, isn't it? But he asks a better question as we go along. I love this. He says, um, one generation passes away and another generation comes along, but the earth abides forever. So here we are, we're working to pass on to the next generation just so they can pass it on to the next generation, just so they can pass it on to the next generation. And by that generation, they forgot the one that started it all. Let me tell you how certain I am of this. Can you trace your ancestry back to before Jesus? No, we can't. If we really value generation to generation, we, we would be able to at least track it back to the year 1000. And most of us can't even do that. And that's kind of sad, isn't it? Because those generations lived and passed it on to us, but we don't even know who they were. <laughs> so did their lives matter? In a sense, yes, they got us. And they got the folks before us who we never knew. And that was one generation to the next. And Solomon says, if that's all you're here for, is to make sure the next generation comes along, that too is vanity. And what he means by vanity is, is it seems kind of pointless. There has to be something more to that than just passing it on down. He talks about the sun going up and coming down and it does it again the next day and the next day. It's over and over. Cycles. It spins. As the world spins, the sun seems to spin around the earth. Just like a fidget spinner. You get one, then you get another one, you get another one, and all of a sudden there they are back again. And it's just over and over. Same thing. Kind of feels like life, doesn't it? That's what Solomon is saying. He says the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not yet full. They've been doing it for thousands of years and the sea still hasn't overflowed its banks because of the rivers. And so the sea, um, the water evaporates and rain comes and lands on the land to fill the rivers to fill up the sea again. It's just a cycle. It just spins and spins and spins. And Solomon says if this is all it's for, it's pointless. If it's just to make a cycle happen, Everything is full of labor, he says. We cannot express it because our eyes are not satisfied with what we see and our ears are not filled with hearing. We always want to see something different, hear something new. New, better, bigger, faster. 
got to have something to keep our stimulus and our, our brain stimulated or, or it just doesn't seem fair. In that verse 9, that which has been is what will be. And as you spin your spinner, you'll see that that which is coming back around to the beginning point where you started the spin, you're just coming back around really quick. So that which has been is going to come back around again. And that which has been done, which you've done is spun it, and then it spins, and then you've got to re-spin it again to keep it going. And there's nothing new as that process goes. And I believe when Solomon wrote that, I think he was really talking about fidget spinners. <laughs> Our lives are like them. And, and at least according to Solomon, life and history just keeps going in circles and cycles in a pointless spin. He considered it a waste of time if there's no reason for it. Truly, let me ask you this. What good is it if we all are here just to pass things on to the next generation who's going to do the same thing? What if that's all we're here to do? Like the animals. Or is there something different with us? Isn't life more than about being comfortable and passing a baton in a race? Just to drop out of the race? Don't you count for more than that? Don't I? Aren't we more than just human fidget spinners? Just doing the same thing over and over again every day? Wondering why? Why are our kids so bored when they have so much stuff? What's missing? The church is similar. We fill out the statistical tables for conference year and um, budget reports and all these other things and they look at it to see how effective the churches are. But what numbers in that report matter the most? Is it the ones toward uh, benevolent offerings? Is it the one toward the general budget? Is it toward uh, mission work? Which one is it? Our fair share? Some people state on those conference statistical tables that the salvations are proof of an effective church ministry. But did you know in those church tables there's only one column that says how many, how many people have come into faith by confession? And that's the one line. Others say transferred from another denomination. And how many have been baptized? Those are the questions they ask. But is that how you tell the church is affected? Number of baptisms? Number of people who believe in Jesus this year as compared to those who believed last year? What's, what makes a church matter? Some pastors say their salvations are proof that they're doing a good job and they count them like notches on the butt of a gun. Yeah, I had ten people I converted to Jesus last week and, and I'll try for ten more this week. And we're going to have ten join the church who are confession of faith this next week because we have a, a big baptism coming up and those folks who have never been baptized are going to come and they're going to get saved before they get baptized and then they're going to go back to their life and outside the church. What saddens me is about folks who see that as their effectiveness of ministries, they don't see effectiveness in follow-up discipleship. They leave that to someone else and some of those folks never get plugged into anything. And that, that's heartbreaking, wouldn't you say? 
And it, it also makes me wonder if those folks aren't just as unsaved as they were before they took a dunk in a river or a swimming pool or tub or sprinkled before they ever didn't come to church and never did after. Are they just as unsaved? How do you know? What is it that makes us effective as a church or not effective? Others would say it's the number of adults who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Others would say how many lives our church has touched over the past year. But how do you know or how do you measure that? Others say increased attendance is a sign of an effective church. Well, and Jesus says if you got dead meat, vultures gather there. So is it because there's more dead meat and it's a social club that they come? Or is it because there's the gospel and lives are being transformed? And other people will say, well, there's more participation in our church than before. Therefore, we're effective. What do you say? What is it that makes us stop being just a church that spins doing the same thing over and over again and not really making a difference? How do we spin when all we do is spin? How do you spin that to something better? Jesus said that the... uh, Evidence of someone who belongs to Him is fruit. And what is fruit? What do you consider fruit? Are you bearing fruit? And how did you spin that to be fruit if it really isn't fruit? I've heard a lot of people say, yeah, I pray a lot. You know, I've, I've helped people in the past and uh, that's my fruit. And is your fruit growing? Is that the fruit you say is the current fruit that God is producing through you? What is it? I'm not telling you what it is. I'm asking you, do you know? Or are you just putting in time to think about that? In other words, why are you here? Not just here on Sunday, but here on earth. Why did God place you here? Are you here because you want to be comfortable? Are you here to sacrifice? What really matters to you? Chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, if you, if you look at it, goes through a list of things. It talks about different things that people think make life matter. To some folks, it's family. All about family. To some others, it's fame. Making a name for themselves. For others, it's fortune. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11 talks about that. It says you can acquire all the world's gold and after you're done, it's still gone from you. Being creative. Some people like to be creative. Make new things. Gives them a sense of energy and vitality. Is that what makes your life matter? About work. A lot of folks work and work and work and never stop working. Is that what makes your life matter? Because you work? Because you get things done or feel like you're making a difference that way? What is it? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just asking. What about pleasure? Ecclesiastes 8.15 says, if if all we're here to do is live and then die, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's enjoy this life for tomorrow we die. If that's the truth. If there's nothing beyond that. Some people, what makes life good is they feel good. They like to... Uh, be in the excitement, uh, thrills, and, and they live for that. Some people like to get caught up in the trends and they're stylish. They pick up and they had a fidget spinner long before anybody else did. I don't know 
what it is for you, but some people, um, they go for emotional boosts. Some choose sex or companionship. Some strive to be beautiful. Some strive to be strong. Some try to acquire knowledge. In Ecclesiastes 1.18, it talks about that. And he says, In much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases their knowledge also increases their sorrow. Because you all of a sudden know what you don't know. And it's crazy because it's hard for us to have a good time, but some people like to live for the next party. Some people want to live just to reduce their stress. If I could just get rid of this stress, and that's their theme every day, all day long. For some people, it's, I'm just trying to find some time. I just need time. Other people say, I'm living for retirement. <laughs> One day when I retire, and most folks who retire say, I'm busier now than I retired than when I was working. Need a job so I can stop being so busy. Why is that? Some people find uh, meaning in telling others about Jesus and finding encouragement in that. Some folks find it in helping the broken people. What I want to know is what ticks your clock. What moves you into a place where time flies and you can't even notice the passing of time because you enjoy that moment so much? What is it that matters to you? I'm not asking you to say it's good or bad. I'm asking you to know. And look at it honestly. But I do say this, and I agree with Solomon, if self-interest is all that you have, I have to agree when he says it's pointless if it's all about you and nothing else. You see, it's a bit less, for some a bit more, than a hundred years of doing what you do, and then you're done doing it. So you get about however many years you get on this planet to do it, and then you're done. And that's it. It's over. Was it worthwhile? Does it matter to you what you do with your time? You see, there are 8 billion other people doing the exact same thing that you are. There's nothing special to it if it's the same thing as everybody else. If all we're doing is putting in time to the next generation come along and then we're forgotten, what does our life matter? What do we do to have significance for the kingdom of God in an eternity if all we're living for is here and now? Solomon says, if this is all there is, what you see and do now, we're in trouble because it's pointless. It's a waste of his time, he said. He said he's been rich and he's had all the things he could ever want and buy all the things he had and owned the kingdom of Israel. Bunch of wives, which I think was a not wise choice. And other females that he could choose at any different time for his whims and his desires. He had it all. And he said, it's pointless if this is all there is. It's, it's like grasping the wind in your arms. Soon it's gone and then you're, you die just like the one who had nothing. If all we are to do is become dust at the end of our life and our life before that is just to acquire enough to make it there, we're in trouble if that's how we see our lives. And I'd agree, wouldn't you? Isn't your life more than just eating, drinking, sleeping, finding a place to live, work, sleep, until the day you die? Isn't it more than that? Don't you think that God planned for something better for you than just that? 
Because if that's all it is, there's nothing noteworthy in anything we do. It's generic. I don't know about you, but that, that word cringes me. Yeah, about the generic. Just as good as the regular, except it doesn't work. <laughs> I, I'm not on a soap opera or anything, but I do know this. In pharmaceutical, the difference between generic and name brand is that generic doesn't have to be 98% potent. It can be up to and between 75 to 90% potent. Well, that 10 to 15% that's not potent usually the ones I get. <laughs> generic. Our lives don't need to be generic. We're not potent. There's nothing inspiring about a life that's self-focused. It garners nobody's passion or interest. It's uninspiring. And it really is boring <laughs> in the long run. And worse than that, it's ungodly. And I understand why people want to create riots and things like that because they have nothing that their life stands for. Maybe this will make a difference. Even folks in the radical Muslim where they strap bombs on themselves and blow themselves up, at least they're dying for a cause rather than just to eat and take up space until they die. They have a choice in how their lives affect the world. Whether it's good or bad, they have a choice. So do we. So do you. You have a choice. But you already knew that, didn't you? I'm not telling you something new. Certainly, I mean, deep down inside, don't you have the sense of, am I making a difference? Do I matter? Does my life get noticed? Or am I just one of those people like a paper on the wall in the background? Am I just a fidget spinner spinning here in circles trying to figure out why I'm here? Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you see life is unfair and unkind. And Solomon would say if it's all it is is what we have here and now, I would agree with you. It is unfair and unkind. But I have hope for you. You see, many years ago, God had this idea and it wasn't just an idea to keep the world spinning. He said, I'm going to send my son to this world that feels like all you do is live and die and therefore it's pointless. So I'm going to send him there and have him tell them about everlasting life. About peace that you just can't understand. About a joy unspeakable and full of glory. About a hope that endures through every trial, tragedy, and problem. About a prosperity that goes beyond this world. That there is something beyond that you can live for here that makes the troubles and trials and all the unfairness of this life seem like, so what? Rather than unfair, we say, this isn't my home anyway. I have a better home with Christ. <coughs> In Hebrews 11, we looked at it 
Last week it says, the people who claim Jesus Christ make it very clear that this is not their home. They have a heavenly country and they aspire. And they aspire to live for that. And if you're living for that country, you're going to inspire people here. Because so few understand how to do that. And, and I wish, with all my heart, that there is a way for everybody to aspire, to inspire, simply by living for that new kingdom, that new earth, and being a citizen of that country here and now, despite the circumstances they face here. Paul even said, what is not seen is permanent, what is seen is passing away. He also said, if we don't have Jesus Christ, and there's no resurrection of the day, we're stuck. There is no hope if there is no resurrection. And we are foolish for preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. But if there is a resurrection, and I know that there is, then the power of the cross is salvation of those who believe. And it's power for a life to never be born in the hands of the Almighty God. God did not give you boring at birth. We learned that word. We learned that state of not having anything to do and called it boring. In all things, God says pray. Prayer is not boring if you pray right. It is the most invigorating, connecting with God and others type of thing you can do in this world. This morning I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do? Especially in connection with your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you going to spin in circles and repeat the cycle of same old, same old? Or are you going to start living dangerously in the hands of an Almighty God? Folks say, if I tell people about Jesus, I'm going to feel uncomfortable. At least you're not bored. At least you got something to do now. At least you got something to think about. At least you're starting to make some waves around you. At least you're doing something. Making a difference rather than just passively watching it go by and wondering why nobody's doing anything. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Living dangerously in the hands of an almighty God in this day and time is becoming more dangerous. Persecution of Christians has not stopped since the day it started. We just don't see it. And often it's because we don't portray it with a lot enough insistence. And we watch our country become immoral and throw crosses off steeples and Bibles out of churches because it offends people. We watch it and we go, well, you know, that's just the way it is. It's not the way it is. That is not the way it is. God's way is the way it is. Always will be. But we become so used to the same cycle that we think, well, it's just going to happen anyway, so why should I try? And we give up. Because we think that everything around us is like that fidget spinner. It's just going to happen regardless of what we do and it's going to keep doing it. But if you set the thing down and start living your life and you're no longer the person just kind of going like this and going, here it comes again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I made somebody mad or I've offended somebody. Well, they'll get over it. I'll just go and do a thing and they can do their thing. And I'm not going to do anything about living a godly life of forgiveness and making amends. Not going to do a thing of it. Because that's dangerous. That's uncomfortable. 
But it's inspiring. It's life changing. It changes the way people see you in connection with what you believe. So do you want to spin or live dangerously in the hands of an Almighty God? Or do you think living dangerously in the hands of an Almighty God doesn't exist? Do you think God has you? Because if you don't think God has you, you don't think He's got this. Or that. Or them. And truly, it makes no difference if that's the case. I don't know about you, but I prefer to live my life with God. And I'm willing to take the risk that He exists, that He is who He said He was, that Jesus Christ did what He said He did, and that eternity matters here and now and not just later. So I'm here to serve. And I'm taking the risk that God is. Because I think it's a riskier proposal not to. But I don't take it as a risk. I take it as a certainty. Because I feel Him in my soul. Something I couldn't put there. Now after all, if this is just a world that exists without a God, I've lost nothing. Not a thing. Just a lot of time I was wasting anyway. So are you going to spend your time, spend your time, or live your time? Solomon wants to know, how do you spend your life in the positive, glorious things for God if you're still just going in circles? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, uh, I so often see myself going those same circles, same conversations, same struggles, same frustrations, and ending up, I feel like I'm back at the beginning talking about the same thing over again, doing the same thing again, trying to make something work and it still doesn't work and still trying it the same way. Somewhere in there, Heavenly Father, I'm asking You to, to drop down with Your Holy Spirit and a nudge in each of our lives and say, this has to end. This is crazy if this is all it's about. That there has to be more. And Heavenly Father, that urge inside of us is I want my life to matter. And since I really want to make a difference, I want to be loved and, and give love and people to see me as I am and not reject me. All those things, Heavenly Father, are from You. Because You built us for relationship with You first. And if that's not in line, nothing else works. If our life with You doesn't work, the life in this world makes no sense either. Solomon was right. And I thank You, Heavenly Father, that in the last two verses of Ecclesiastes, after Solomon laid out the pointlessness, he said, the conclusion of the matter is that we would love You serve You and follow You and trust that You have our eternity in Your hands. Heavenly Father, if we don't, we're in trouble because we feel like we're wasting our time in a world that's wasting its time. And Heavenly Father, I don't think You would ever create something that was unworthy of Your love, wasteful or unwanted. And I don't believe for a moment, God, that You would look at us and say, this was just a crazy experiment. You're done. It's over. 